Welcome to the Evocative Exchange, where we meet with go-getters who have that X factor, a way of meeting today's challenges with bold and evocative solutions. We'll share what keeps these experts thinking, thriving, and feeling inspired in design, entrepreneurial life, healthcare marketing, and beyond. I'm your host, Donna Teitelman, and today on the Evocative Exchange, we welcome Nancy Eberhardt, the owner and CEO of Pathwise Partners. She's featured as a Forbes book author. She's a certified coach and a strategist who pulls from real world experience to make strong, successful leaders even stronger and more successful. You've gotta love that. Nancy's background includes executive roles in for-profit, nonprofit, and community organizations, including banking, real estate development, social ventures, and even a national park. Nancy exercises the utmost respect and consideration to engage and inspire leaders while calling for a momentous shift in how people communicate. That's the magic that opens the door to endless possibilities. Welcome to the Evocative Exchange, Nancy. Donna, thank you so much for hosting me today. We are very happy to have you here. And um, Xavier Creative House is a big fan of your book, Uncommon Valor. In fact, we've included uh, respect and candor in the Xavier Creative House core values. So we're excited to talk with you, get a little bit deeper into that topic. Uh, the book was originally published in 2014, and then Forbes book launched a second edition in 2018. So I'm curious what got you interested in this topic. Can, can you talk a little bit about how that morphed into a book? Absolutely. Along my journey working with clients of for-profit and nonprofit organizations, I started to ask CEOs if they could name the top three things they would like to improve in their organization or had a magic wand and could make three things different, what would they be? And invariably, each CEO would say some version of, I wish folks in the organization told me the truth. Hmm. And then I would speak to employees and I would say, if you had a magic wand and could improve three things in the organization, and what I would get back would almost always be in people's top three, I really wish I knew more what was going on in the organization. And so it suddenly hit me in the 2010, 2011 timeframe that everybody struggles with wanting more information and making sure it's the real deal. Like not the spin, not mm -hmm. what somebody thinks we wanna hear, not holding back with what we are afraid to say. And so I decided it not only warranted my focus on it, it warranted a blog, which I started in 13, which then allowed me to say, well, maybe I can write a book Wow! for 2014. And um, I never appreciated so much what that journey might be like. Like I understand that folks like um, JK Rowling and Grisham, they write as a full-time job. And what I realized is when you write and you're working full-time in another job, you know, Sunday night at eight o'clock at night, you're saying, oh, now I need to write the book. <laughs> and as an extrovert, it can be a very introverted experience. So what I started to do is work with some folks who would allow me to talk the book 
And then I would use those recordings to actually write from, along with the blog entries I had already been building. That's really masterful. Yeah, I really encourage anyone to start blogging first and then look at the huge volume of material you have from your blogs to create a book. I think that's amazing because right now we're seeing a lot more executives and professionals getting in um, involved with thought leadership. Um, so that's more like just doing posts. And then now uh, people are doing podcasts. And so all of that material can lead to something. And with given your expertise, I'm just thrilled that you chose that topic of candor. And I was really impressed when you said that you started with interviewing. And it makes me wonder, what do you think is missing for people in corporate America to, to do that part of the equation, like why do they have to wait for a consultant to come in to interview? How come they don't do that themselves? Donna, I think you picked up on a really key point of what's wrong in our organizations today. And we're all as humans guilty to, of having contributed to it. And that is along the way, we've somehow decided there's a right way to say things, or there's things you say and things you don't say. And by the time people get to mid-career, there is all kinds of anxiety over saying the real deal or speaking frankly to people. And whether, I'm just going to say it, whether it is well-meaning attorneys and HR professionals, mm. or whether it just comes from within where we're afraid we'll hurt people's feelings, or somebody who's really good, who just needs a little bit of feedback will we'll leave. We come from fear instead of what's possible when we share our real self. It just amazes me. It's like when you talk about people that don't have any mistakes yet. So the younger employees come in and they don't know any better. And so it's that pair of fresh eyes. But to think that we're working our way all the way up to uh, being fearful, being having anxiety, that just really, it's something that doesn't have to happen. And it makes me wonder, is there a certain way that you coach, say, young professionals or rank and file level people different than how you work with a CEO? Certainly. Well, one thing I do is try to understand what assumptions they already have going on in their head about who to be and how to show up and how to speak in organizations. And whether it is from their family or from college or from an internship or a first work experience, invariably somewhere in there, they've gotten really clear that not making mistakes is paramount. Hmm. And so why, why would we expect people to be frank and open uh, if we haven't had a way to yet show them that, um, that being wrong is not the most important thing we're focused on? We need to move from a no mistakes culture to a no surprises culture. And that's undoing a whole lot of all of our young lives in order to begin to do that. So it's interesting when you said, first, I like to see, you know, what's inside their head. And, and absolutely, that goes right along with the interviewing. So how is it different when you have to work with a whole group of people? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we have to start out with making sure that people feel 
comfortable in the environment to be fully expressed. So I actually have to cause a space and interactions with people where they suddenly realize that we are going to move away from judging and blaming, whether it's ourselves or others, and start to be in real conversation. Sometimes people can get there quickly if they have a relationship either in their personal community or work world where they can say anything and it's all okay. Because then I can ask them to pretend they're there. Um, you would be amazed though at the number of people who don't feel like they have that relationship anywhere in their life wow. where they can say or do anything and that they create possibilities together all the time because there are no barriers to frank speaking. You know, it's, it's amazing when you think about how complex this issue is. And then of course, there's the industry that the company is in, the area of expertise, whether they have a product, a service offering. And yet this is such an important part that has to come together with whatever it is they're creating to make things work. And I think about bringing new employees into the workforce and having an orientation process so that people can get acclimated. Is there anything special that you recommend companies put in the orientation to start this conversation? Well, first I would advise that the organization put the kind of focus on itself to ensure that its culture really welcomes this. And the reason I say that is I was once in an organization where I felt like something we were doing was not working. And I think a lot of people knew that, but no one had the will to say that to the CEO. Right. And so I asked the CEO, um, I said, I have an opinion about what we might do with this new product offering. Um, and I have a point of view about its success. And I said, do you want to hear my opinion? And he said, no. And you know what? That was a gift for me. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Right. Because what I learned was he knew I had an opinion. He did not care to hear it. And so what I was able to do was put my sights on a next move in my career where I felt like I could be open and honest with the person I was working with. It's, now, it's, just, it's just so important. Here's what I will say. This person told people all the time he had an open door. He wanted to hear what people had to say. So this disconnect, like if, if we start to onboard people around candor and how to be uh, straight with people with respect, then the organization has to support that or it becomes the hypocrisy and the lack of candor and people not trusting. So um, the very first step is to make sure the culture really means it. And of course the culture starts at the top. Right, and I was thinking about top down mm -hmm. and how do you really make that happen? Just like you say, there's a lot of companies that publish a mission statement and a vision and, you know, they say what their core values are and that it does include this, but what actually happens is frequently different. And as you said, that's, that makes people feel even worse and less like they can trust. So, you know, as a strategist, as a coach, how is it that you impact that executive to impress upon them this need for them to set the pace and the tone? Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, 
um, they, well, I will say for some CEOs, they know that the word bottleneck often <laughs> refers to the CEO. Like that's quite where that term came from when there's a barrier at the top. And so they often know it and what they're interested in is making a difference. So that's the easiest uh, interaction to have because they're on board for where they can make a difference. There are also those who would insist that they do it and maybe they do. And what I will say is if they do it well, oftentimes they do it well in giving that feedback that's direct with respect to others. Once we get into this kind of conversation and what this culture means, they realize that they're not so great at receiving candid feedback. Two different things that we need to get good at in order to have a very open and candid culture. And then there are those who are really, really very good at it, um, but maybe want to tweak some. So there are some who are very direct, and yet they feel like it doesn't land with respect. And so we'll work on that portion of it. Um, because when it comes from judgment or blame, then that's not candor. That's just um, rough. And in a worst cases, may feel like bullying. I think that's a really important point to separate it right down the middle. So how am I at delivering honest and open feedback without judgment? And that's over here on the left. And now how am I at receiving feedback, like accessing my blind spot or encouraging people to give me constructive feedback and not just, um, you know, praise. So do you handle those topics separately? Do you actually separate them and have like two different trainings? How does it work? Um, no, I will usually do it um, like a tapestry. So um, what we'll do is continue to improve in the areas that feel comfortable so they feel more comfortable. And then we'll also work in the areas of transferring those skills that feel comfortable adding additional skills to make the, the gap issue get better. Wow, it, it just seems like such a specialty area. And, and really it's, it's something that should be, it should be done everywhere, it should be common sense. It makes me think about students that are coming up through high school and college and then they're coming into the workforce. And, Xavier Creative House actually has a philanthropic platform that's focused on this next generation of leaders. And I'm curious to know, Nancy, how young would you actually start? Like, where should we be looking to support the next generation? Wow, that's a great question, Donna. And what I'd like to do is start with having you and your listeners think about um, when they've been around two and three-year-old children. <laughs> And um, I hope we all have this experience that I've been lucky enough to have, which is to be around a two or three-year-old <laughs> that I hear say, mommy, why are his ears so big? <laughs> so what we know is, is that direct speak happens in children naturally, right? Right. So what happens between then and say teenagers and early young adults? Well, what happens is if you think about that Wow, mommy, his ears are so, why are his ears so big? <laughs> what is the response we have? When I ask folks, they often say, 
shh, <laughs> or don't say that, or they grab the child's arm and pull them away. I mean, people share all the time about what these might look like and what they sound like when they're interacting with, young, with youngsters. Well, if you can't say something nice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. That's how we were raised. Right, right. And so what, is it any wonder that as these very young children begin to mature, that we might be sending them a message that says, it's better to be quiet than wrong. Wow. In fact, I will tell you, Donna, that it even makes me think about when children are asked later on why they didn't speak up about things they knew were going on with adults that shouldn't have been. Oh, wow. How much maybe as adult authority figures we've contributed to that reluctance? It just, you know, it, it, it kind of gives me chills, not in a good way. And, you know, like you said, somewhere between toddler and teenager, we, we hear that message. So then I guess when we get young adults coming into the workforce, how do we convince them that that's not true? Okay. It's interesting because for some that go maybe to college in their first career or high school and to college, we know some who will just say anything still. Um, in fact, for people who have had teenagers, I often hear that, you know, they. They either have teenagers that think saying anything is fine, or they have teenagers that don't speak at all. And wow, it's right. like a happy medium. So I think what we're looking for is to begin to develop, even when they're very, very young and continue to reinforce it, this notion that almost anything can be solved as long as we're in direct conversation with each other. And... Um, that we love people and find them worthy, no matter what the results and no matter what the circumstances, um, so that people feel safe to share vulnerabilities, to share when they're afraid, to um, not always have what I call this American DIY mentality, that if we have a problem that, that it's on us to solve it and not engage people in collaborative problem solving. Right. And all of those things, I think, if done younger in life, uh, would really set up just a much better workforce and workplace scenario than we have today. It makes me think about courses that I had when I was in corporate America, but they came from the different avenues, sort of more of the negative, calling it conflict resolution. Is this a more mature version of that or is conflict resolution still playing an important role in this whole cycle? Well, I know I surprise people when I say this. I had the great good pleasure to actually teach in an executive MBA program working for Jack Welch. Oh, I love it. And yes, <laughs> and what we have to remember is, is that um, uh, most people don't learn by, um, by threat or by pain, um, you know, we all tend to learn most by doing. And so I think it's really about practice. It's really about ourselves thinking about what we're teaching in that moment. Um, I think it's about um, asking people to take the chance to share themselves and also to model ourselves doing it. Like when I, as a leader, 
or as an authority figure or as a CEO or as a board chair begin to actually show certain behaviors and tell stories where I messed up or I didn't do it and everything worked out, it's an amazing experience people have when they realize that that job they're aspiring to is not about being perfect. You know, it's amazing. I've read um, a lot of articles lately. Forbes is one of my favorite sources. And, you know, they're talking about the soft skills for leaders and how crucial they are. And one of the things you just mentioned was having the ability to be self-deprecating, but in a way that helps people learn that you're open and that you're not perfect and that mistakes are okay. So, I mean, I can really appreciate what you're saying. And, you know, imagine taking this information and sort of getting it settled in your company and, and people are trusting and then the pandemic hits. And now we've got to see how can we make this translate over the airwaves with remote workers? What, what, what things are you hearing about that? And what are some strategies that we can share with our listeners? Well, Donna, you've just touched on my world today. It's interesting <laughs> how many former clients have circled back around and said, for the first time in a long time, we're regressing in our interactions on the executive team or the leadership team or in our, you know, again, too, with the um, cultural injustice pieces where people are trying to have direct conversations about things that are hard to talk about. Right. Um, how do we get to that place of trust again when we're in this mostly for many of us virtual two-dimensional world? We're not bumping into people in the hallways. We're not going out to lunch in order to um, talk about what's been on our mind, but we haven't had a moment that's that's unrelated perhaps to this project or that project. And what many people who are naturally introverted have told me is that they really love this world of virtual and um, they're much more reluctant to go bump into somebody, to pick up the phone and make a phone call to say, hey, I've been wondering. Um, so it really plays itself into a situation where we have to be more intentional about connecting with people on ways that keep uh, almost a, a higher level of, and, and people might cringe when I use this word in the, in the workplace, but intimacy so that we don't have a level of um, like so much formality and, and not having a place to bump into people and be less right. Nancy, I think I just found the, the next title of, of a post or a podcast or a book. Are, are you ready? In I am. Thank in, you. Intentional intimacy. Oh, wow. That's just out there far enough to make people read sort of the subheading. <laughs> I know it, it woke me up because now I'm thinking to myself, okay, our listeners are taking notes because everyone's dealing with this right now. It's front and center. And wow, like what are the steps to intentional intimacy? And, and how do you do that in a professional way? I, I just think there's volumes there. I love that. Donna. <laughs> and you know, here's what's funny. When you said it, I thought about the story that mm -hmm. goes with this precisely. I have a, a very, very um, 
competent, capable, high EQ, um, male CEO colleague. And um, he, he came to me and he said, I'm feeling really disconnected from my folks. I mean, we're on screen time all the time and they're in the office three days a week, but I'm feeling disconnected from right. this group or that group, which is totally virtual. And I said, how have you reached out to them in between meetings? And he, you could just see his whole face change. Like it wow. hadn't occurred to him until that very moment <laughs> that he might actually pick up the phone and just say like he would say when he bumped into him right. in the hallway, um, tell me what's going on in your world. So it might feel obvious to some of us, but when we're in it, it's harder to see. For, for sure, there's people need a roadmap. And I, I mean, I think that the candor is a great start. And when things change up like this in such a monumental way, we have to let people know, look, it, it's still the same. They're still the same employees. And, and like you said, maybe you need to pick up the phone. It seems simple, but it's so important. And I'm, I'm just really glad our listeners are getting to hear this conversation. And you do, you communicate in a lot of different ways. And sometimes as a strategist, definitely as a coach, uh, a speaker, an author, I'm curious, which discipline do you enjoy the most? And which do you do best? Well, you know, it's a fabulous question because uh, I'm sure some listeners will um, be able to identify with this. So the thing that's worst in the world for me is anything that feels rote. And so I love variety. And what I find is almost every circumstance I'm brought to in an organization, I probably do a little bit of each one. I might be hired to work with a team on strategy or to coach a CEO or a board. But oftentimes there are threads of all of them that run through. Um, when I'm asking questions as a coach, often it's about people's vision, what brings them joy and purpose in the work world and personally, and that's all about strategy. And oftentimes a client might say, well, um, you know, I, I think you've got my voice, you know, the strategy and vision of the organization. Will you help me prepare for themselves a speaking engagement to make sure it comes through? And I often write for clients, whether it's how their company is represented in the, in the digital space or how they um, show up themselves in communications to employees. So I really get a dose of it in each one. And that's what I love. Well, I think it's so important, like you said, to keep it fresh so that people really can get you as authentic. Again, that's that ability to um, tell the story and it doesn't always have to make you look good. Uh, that's how people connect and, and feel like, okay, maybe it's all right for me to disclose something that I'm struggling with. Mm -hmm. And so I think the companies that, know about you and that invite you in are very lucky. And of course, the rest of us are connecting with you through um, your books. And I'm just wondering, do you have some topics in mind? Is there a book in your future, Nancy? Wow. You know, um, I just uh, was on a, a Zoom call with an author who's written a couple of books. And he, 
he said this the same thing that I feel. He said, um, I just can't even imagine the thought of another book right now. <laughs> because um, to give you an idea, like how hard it was for me to get the first one out the door, and I will be candid about why in a moment, is um, like the, uh, the day of my book launch, I got shingles. Oh my goodness. Like, I mean... I didn't realize how stressful it was for me. And what I realized was when I put out a book, especially the first edition in 2014, um, there were not as many uh, folks writing seven, six, seven years ago as there are now. Right. And so I kept thinking it's not academic enough. It's too mm. short. I don't have enough to say. Who am I to do this topic when people like, um, Jim Collins and right. Stephen Covey write about trust or about the brutal truth or whatever. You know, who am I to do this? Um, so really, it's about the anxiety of will it be enough and will it be worthy and all those things that I think is our natural human thoughts. And um, so it's not the writing itself; it's the process of putting yourself out there in words that you can never take back. I. I really feel that. And it's so funny because what it made me think of was imagine if you went and interviewed your clients and asked them that same question, you know, do you want to hear more from me? Do you think that um, some of the, the stories that we've shared are, are worthy of moving forward? And it's interesting. I bet you're going to hear a lot of encouragement and you, it'll start with me. I absolutely think <laughs> that you should write on the topic of intentional intimacy and really, really help people to understand that it's just them being themselves and being human. And that actually that is required to be a leader. It's not just your service. It's not just your product. It's actually having those people come together. So you have definitely inspired the confidence in me to know that whatever you do, it's going to be outstanding. Oh, Donna, your words... It's so grateful for them. Thank you. Well, this has been an eye-opening conversation, Nancy. As I said, this is a real note taker, I know, for our listeners. And I'm sure they're going to want to know, how can they learn more? So what's the best way for people to reach you? Thanks for that, Donna. Um, I have a website called Pathwise, P-A-T-H-W-I-S-E, Partners and that's plural.com. And there is in fact a candor quiz on the website. So you could do a self-assessment, it's free, and just see if you're one of those folks who's, who is already candid to the core or maybe a little candor challenged. I love that. Everyone needs to take the candor quiz. And Nancy, We'll put the information that you just shared in the notes uh, as the podcast goes out with the link. So that way people will be able to click on it or see it. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure has been mine. It's been a real privilege. And thank you for your hints and ideas for moving forward. You filled me with possibility. Thank you. This has been the evocative exchange that explores people and businesses that have that X factor that keeps you inspired and focused on what's possible.